Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. We are continuing along this magical journey that we're on of our special mini-series on our favorite topic, Breakpoints. We have leaders and experts from two breakpoint-setting organizations, the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, or CLSI, and the United States Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, or USCAST, to teach us everything we need to know about how we interpret whether or not we can use antimicrobials to treat our patients. If you missed our earlier episodes, please go back and listen to the first parts of this series where we first discuss how breakpoints are set, then we get into the 2023 updates to aminoglycoside breakpoints and the 2023 updates to the Piperacillin and Tazobactam breakpoints. Today, we're going to be discussing the 2019, so a few years ago, but still really important that everyone understands what is going on here, updates to the fluoroquinolone breakpoints, particularly ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin. But before we get started on this topic, let's reintroduce our speakers. So first, Dr. Mike Satlin is with us. He is an infectious diseases physician and the clinical director of transplant oncology infectious diseases at Cornell. He is the co-chair currently of the Breakpoint Working Group on the CLSI Subcommittee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, and we are super excited to have him back for episode four. Hi. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be back. Hi, guys. These are, it's just really a joy to record these with you guys. So next is Dr. Jim Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the Clinical Supervisor for Infectious Diseases at Oregon Health and Science University. He also previously served as the co-chair of the Breakpoints Working Group of the CLSI and is now the chair of the CLSI AST subcommittee. So Jim, moving on up and moving into the Breakpoints family. Hello. Hello, Aaron. Thanks again for the invitation. And Magical, am I now the only person with Lucky Charms music going through my head? But anyway. No, man, we're on a total Harry Potter vibe here, okay? Clearly, you did not listen to your own episode one. It's fine. And last, but certainly not least, Dr. Jason Pogue. Dr. Pogue is a clinical professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy and an infectious diseases pharmacist at Michigan Medicine. He is the past president of the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists and currently the chair of the executive committee of USCAST. Jason, welcome to Breakpoints. Great to be back. Great to see Jim and Mike yet again for another fun episode. And yes, Jim, you are the only one with Lucky Charms on his mind. Well, that's because none of you are lucky enough to live in Portland with salt and straw. This is their cereal month and they've got pots of golden rainbows and it is absolutely off the rails. It's like a bowl of Lucky Charms and milk. So oh, really? It's on the brain. Yeah, All can right. we have a field trip? Because I'm in. I've, I know. I've actually been to Salt and Straw once a long time ago, pre-pandemic. I just want a higher ratio of marshmallow to whatever those green things are. If they could, you know, like... Yeah, other things? Yeah, whatever the rest of the stuff. Not like one to one, but like maybe instead of like 10 to one, like four to one or two to one, something like that. Yeah, you're, it, it, is, it is well done, okay. Dr. Satman, let me tell you. Mike's like, can I have less cereal in my yeah. cereal? Just give me marshmallows. Just give, give me a bowl of marshmallows. <laughs> and I'm happy. With weird food that coloring. That is literally what salt and salt does. There's a video of them doing that. It's awesome. All right. Well, let's start with the marshmallows then on this episode. So our loyal listeners have been following our series. Again, we're on episode four, three fabulous ones prior to this, if you want to go back and listen. And in those three episodes, we covered really important topics, but a lot of content. And our listeners had some awesome clarifying questions on some really important topics 
that we covered in those episodes. So we want to start with clarifying those before we get into the fluoroquinolones. So the first I'll take, because I think I discussed this and I want to make sure I was clear. So in the aminoglycoside episode, we talked about how the CLSI is now not recommending a breakpoint for gentamicin and pseudomonas and US cast supports this stance. And so there is no longer a breakpoint for gent and pseudomonas. This is a huge culture change. And so what do you do about this at your hospitals? In the previous episode, we mentioned that you could suppress gentamicin on all pseudomonal cultures and put a comment that says gentamicin is no longer recommended for the treatment of pseudomonas. That is certainly one reasonable approach. The other thing you could do is just report gentamicin as resistant for all pseudomonals and either not report the MIC or if you report it as less than or equal to four and then have resistant, you're going to have to do some education there, but that would be an option as well. So we just wanted to be clear that both of those are reasonable options. The second great question that came in was some clarification around the fact that sometimes CLSI and or the FDA recommends an intermediate or an I number. So this would fall between susceptible and resistant. And the reason frequently for that intermediate rather than a susceptible dose dependent is not necessarily a dosing thing that if you give a higher dose, you can hit that target, but more to account for what we call technical uncertainty. And so Dr. Satlin, do you mind explaining that in a little more detail when something's intermediate and the reason is there's technical uncertainty? What exactly does that mean? Yeah, sure. So MIC values are estimates and you can run the same isolate and you'll get up to and sometimes more than, you know, a one dilution difference in the MIC value. And whenever we set MIC breakpoints, it's also really important that we have disc correlates that work because disc diffusion is a great susceptibility testing method. It's accessible to any hospital, including hospitals outside of the United States because it's cheap and it's, it's reliable. And if we don't have an intermediate category, then it becomes very hard to set discorrelates because there's too much flipping from susceptible to resistant. So by establishing an intermediate category, you can have some buffer zone so that one, when manufacturers are developing their susceptibility testing devices, they can yield accurate results. They don't have a lot of these very major errors flip-flopping between resistant and susceptible and then vice versa. And so essentially having that I category allows tests to be functional and accurate. But there are many definitions of intermediate or many things that can be used in that definition. For I think this particular instance with Piptazo and Pseudomonas, it's mostly to allow some wiggle room so that the test can actually function. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's great explanation. We really appreciate the clarification. And then our last awesome question that came in, came in surrounding the U.S. cast breakpoints for Pipercil and Tazobactam and Enterobacteralis. So I think we talked about these breakpoints in the context of the Merino 1 and the Merino 2 studies, which came out that really caused us to evaluate the role of Pipercil and Tazobactam for the treatment of Enterobacteralis. Um, and so Jason, can you take this one and walk us through what the U.S. CAST recommendations are looking at the different types of enterobacterialis in the context of those studies. Yeah, I'm happy to, although I'm struggling right now, Aaron, if I'm honest, because all I can think about is Lucky Charms and how much I'd really like to have some right now. So but anyway, yeah, great question, and I'm happy to clarify. So again, just to kind of walk through it. So first off, think about those organisms that the IDSA I like their terminology, that have a moderate to high likelihood of clinically significant AMC production. So take those out of the rest of the Enterobacter alleys, and we're talking about uh, Enterobacter cloacae, 
Klebsiella terogenes, and Citrobacter frondae. For those organisms, regardless of what the MIC is, no breakpoint recommended from USCAS. The reason is we're concerned for that selection of resistance. We think the preclinical and the clinical data do not necessarily support using piperacillin tazobactam there. So for those organisms, no breakpoint. Now for the rest of the enterobacter alleys, and, and mainly we're talking about E. coli, Kleb, and Proteus here, for, for the other ones, the way that we've uh, approached this situation is we kind of stratify it as a function of third-generation cephalosporin susceptibility because we're, we're, we're considering those isolates that are resistant to third-generation cephalosporins, so a drug like ceftriaxone, we're considering that to be kind of a poor man's test for ESBL production in those pathogens. When we look at the preclinical, the clinical data, concerns about tazobactam exposures, in the setting of third-generation cephalosporin resistance, so again, ESBL producers, we don't feel that the evidence supports that piptazo is appropriate or a good option in that situation. And so for that reason, we also do not have a breakpoint recommended there. However, if it is third-generation cephalosporin susceptible, so not an ESBL producer, then we do feel comfortable with our piperacillin exposures in those patients. And so we have a susceptibility breakpoint of 16 in that setting. That is at a dose of 4.5 Q6 as a three-hour infusion. And, and one point that I would just clarify here as well, Aaron, is that I do think it's important. I think Jim talked about this last time, and I think it's a really important note, is that it assumes that dose. And, and if you don't give that dose, that breakpoint recommendation may not be valid. And we, and we talk about that a little bit in our documents, but just something that's really important to keep in mind. Awesome. Thank you so much. And yes, that was something I wanted to make sure I spoke clearly on in the, the episodes preceding and our future episodes as well. When we say a dose for these breakpoints, it's what the breakpoint is based on. Um, it's not necessarily saying that's always the 100% all the time the dose you have to give your patient, but it's what the breakpoint is based on. So if you're not giving that dose, then your interpretation is not representative. Okay. Awesome clarification. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. I wish I could give you marshmallows for your good work there. But let's move on and talk about the fluoroquinolones. So fluoroquinolones, guys, this was a 2019 update. This feels like 100 years ago, but in fact, it also feels like yesterday because the past three years are kind of all the same day. Um, but these came out 29, I mean, seriously, right? Like 2019, I'm like, that was, that was not four years ago. Um, alas, it was. But the CLSI proposed new breakpoints. The FDA did weigh in on them. So these are the breakpoints, but some micro labs have not yet updated their panels or had the opportunity to update these breakpoints. We've all been a bit busy in the last few years. So let's talk about the old breakpoints, when those were set, and then why we updated them and what the new breakpoints are and what we need to do about that, just like we did for Piptazo, just like we did for the aminoglycosides. So the old fluoroquinolone breakpoints, and I'm going to say fluoroquinolones, but really we're only talking about ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin throughout this episode um, so Cipro, um, pre-2019 for Enterobacterialis, all Enterobacterialis, was less than or equal to one, is susceptible to intermediate, and greater than or equal to four was resistant. Levofloxacin was less than or equal to two, is susceptible for intermediate, greater than or equal to eight as resistant. Uh, so Mike or Jim, either one of you from CLSI perspective, whoever wants to go first, like where did those come from? And then what inspired you guys to look to update these. And then Jason, I of course want you to weigh in because I think USCAS did some of the, the early look at these work. Yeah. And so Aaron, I'll, I'll jump in there and, and Mike can get me out of trouble when I say something silly. 
um, you know, I think what really kind of triggered this discussion was, you know, there had long been, I think, some some PKPD concern about some of the breakpoints out there. And then U.S. cast um, in what was just kind of a tour de force document. I, I remember trying to put it in my backpack and get on the plane and, you know, almost herniated a disc. Um, but it was this absolutely massive. Jim, they have laptops. That... You can look at it on the. Okay, but... Yeah, but you know, I, I like paper sometimes too. So, so you know, I basically we looked through this and realized just exactly how far off of where the PKPD hinted we should be the breakpoints actually were. And when you look at CLSI's playbook or rulebook, basically M23 has that listed as one of the criteria that we use to reevaluate breakpoints. And so this discussion came up, the US CAS document was, was really nicely done. And so we took that information and went back and opened up some discussions, formed an ad hoc working group, and folks just kind of took a look at it and said, you know, it does look like there's something here. And so that led to, you know, gosh, Mike, what was it, at least a couple years um, worth of discussions at the meetings about what to do with these. And, you know, so there was a lot of discussion, things didn't move. There were a lot of discussion, things didn't move. And so finally, you know, it came to a point where, Mike, Mike may remember this. I stood at the front of the room and basically said, look, guys, I, this is like the third time I've been back with this. And we're going to talk about this one more time. And if we don't do something today, I'm done. Somebody else can do it. And I think that shook the room to where it was like, oh, crap, he's, he's not playing. So we so basically it started moving forward. And I think it's a really good example of how we view the importance of PKPD. It is clearly one of the three kind of cornerstones that we use to set these breakpoints. And when it's clear that we're that far off, it really kind of causes us to stop and take a look at, okay, you know, there was no clinical signal. And I think that was really part of the challenge and part of the pushback was that people are like, prove this matters, right? And so that really wasn't there. And that was a lot of hesitation by the group because, you know, these are very widely used drugs. Um, there's obviously a lot of concern about having this class of drugs kind of disappear um, as basically things become more resistant. And I think one of the things that really helped put folks' minds at ease was that it was very clear that the, the dilution changes we were talking about, which were basically, you know, I think one or two dilutions on both Enterobacterialis and Pseudomonas, really didn't cut deeply into the wild type or create any methodologic problems that should break the test. And also, we try to really kind of align with UCAST when possible if these types of discussions come up, because again, it doesn't serve anyone well globally from a surveillance standpoint to have 17 different breakpoints running around. It's hard for device manufacturers. It creates a lot of different problems. And so really kind of trying to harmonize 
um, was, was another reason. We recognized the PKPD was off. We thought the harmonization was there potentially. And so basically that was what kind of triggered the move at the end of the day. But there was a lot of concern about that lack of clinical signal um, and whether or not this was something we should be doing. Nice. Thanks, Jim, for that background. So Jason, can you talk to us then about what was in that U.S. CAST document? What, when did you guys start looking at this and what did you find? Yes, as, as Jim alluded to, that's another, for your homework tonight, that's another 300-page document that you can read all about and get every single piece of this story. But I think that this is another example that, you know, the data evolved and it was time to evolve a breakpoint. And so this actually started in 2014 for U.S. Gas. This is one of the first things that was addressed by the organization, predates me in the organization. And I think that a couple of the drivers, I think Jim brings a good point up about that a lot of us had concerns about the PKPD based off of what we knew, the type of information we were getting, that the MIC was less than or equal to one or less than or equal to two. And we knew that that really wasn't enough information to answer the question. And then also there's, I mean, resistance was increasing, right? The quinolone resistance was increasing and, and was this contributing to it? Was that making more isolates look even more susceptible than they were? So there's a lot of reasons to look at that. And so in 2014, at the end of 2014 is when this process started. And this was a situation where all three of those pillars came into play. And so there's the MIC data. We wanted contemporary MIC data to look at what those distributions looked like. Um, we had now had PKPD data. There's a lot of PK studies now. So not just like the healthy volunteer data in the package insert. We had infected patients PK data that we could use for simulations. We had animal models for targets for different pathogens. And Jim, one thing I would say is that we actually have some clinical PKPD data as well that I think helped inform this a little bit, although it wasn't necessarily like what they were asking you for, there are data where they kind of simulated exposures in patients and they were showing that if you hit certain targets that went pretty much in line with the one log targets from animals, that that seemed to be associated with some outcomes. And so you had all of that come together. And so that's where version one of that document uh, that is on the website came from. So then for about two years, remember we talked, Aaron, uh, in previous episodes about how U.S. CAS formed as the National Advisory Committee for the U.S. to UCAS. And so what happened then is that those data got presented to UCAS. There was a solid, Jim, you talk about a couple years back and forth in CLSI. There was a couple years back and forth before the couple years of back and forth as well between U.S. CAS and UCAS to get that to a place that everybody was happy with. Because as we talked about in previous uh, episodes, different groups, kind of prioritize the different pillars to different degrees. And so that's kind of how that natural process happened from U.S. CAS standpoint. So what you're saying is this is a very quick and easy, easy <laughs> process and why Jason has so much hair still. Okay. So the new breakpoints then that we are operating under in this, the year 2013, Cipro for Enterobacterialis is now susceptible, is less than or equal to 0.25, intermediate is 0.5, and then resistant greater than or equal to 1. And then levofloxacin is susceptible, is less than or equal to 0.5, intermediate 1, resistant greater than or equal to 2. And so those are based on a dose for Cipro of 400 IV Q12 or 500 PO Q12. For Levo, it's 750 Q24. I think... What comes up then, and I want to talk about clinically, is would you ever use the 750Q12 for Cipro for Enterobacterialis 
Um, because when we get into Pseudomonas, that's the Pseudomonas dose. And so levofloxacin has the same dose for both bugs, Enterobacterialis and Pseudomonas, but the Cipro dose is lower for Enterobacterialis. Can you shed some light on that? And is there ever a time we should give 750Q12 for Enterobacterialis? Yeah, I can take this one. Who you, I think the dosing was... Uh, I love that the, the, the non-pharmacist on the call is... Oh, like, yeah, I got, got the, the dosing. dosing yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm up. Come in, coach. I'm I just, up. I just like stepping right in the uh, the, the dog poop. Um, so... Uh, this is your moment, Mike. You you got yeah, this. You got this. Of. I mean, I think there was disagreements about the dose. And, um, you know, if you look at the, at the murine PK... If you look at the PKPD modeling and targets... And uh, as, as Jason said, uh, you know, there's a nice paper from George Drusano and his group looking at pneumonia with a clinical target. There's targets from animals. There's actually a recent paper, which sort of made us a lot, feel a lot better from uh, some colleagues in Taiwan in AAC in 2021. After we made this decision, they essentially did a study where they looked at levofloxacin and found that patients that had MICs of one and two, which would previously have been susceptible and are no longer susceptible, but at the time, they were susceptible, so patients received the drug, that the mortality was higher than, and significantly higher than with lower MICs. And they actually came up with their own clinical target, too, which was also similar. So strictly, if you look at that, you could argue that maybe the dose should be 750Q12, because you might get slightly higher of a one-log kill. Although the reality is that the probability of target attainment is not that much different. It's like 60% versus maybe 50%. I think there was a lot of compromise made between what was in the label. So most of the indications for Enterobacterialis are 500Q12, and that's what people were comfortable using. People didn't want to use three times a day, you know, IV dosing, for example, of 400Q8. And then there was also thought about, well, what are the infections that we're treating usually with fluoroquinolones and Enterobacterialis? And number one, two, and three are UTIs, right? Where, you know, certainly, I know there's some debate about this, but we know that these drugs concentrate you know, and even at that dose, you reliably achieve targets that are associated with stasis. So I think there was some debate about that. I don't think it means in any way that you can't decide to give your patient 750 milligrams Q12. Uh, but that's what led to kind of this compromise decision of, well, let's go with kind of what's mostly in the FDA label of 500 Q12. And this also may be, you know, a time where, you know, I guess as a kind of a philosophy, we we knew that these breakpoints were way off because of the PKPD, but how much you think the PKPD are kind of an exact science and tell you this, okay, so this should be the breakpoint and you must get a one log kill with a probability of 90%. Yeah, you know, I think there's some wiggle room there and different people have different opinions about how precise the PKPD modeling is. But certainly we knew that it gets us in the right ballpark and that the old breakpoints were, you know, we knew we were doing something better than what we had before, because certainly we weren't even in the right neighborhood with the old breakpoints. Yeah, Aaron, and I think, you know, for our audience, it's really important to note that that was a big hang up. Mike's point about dosing concerns, you know, with a lot of the safety stuff that had come out there, and there was a lot of hesitancy in the room about recommending higher doses than people were accustomed to. And there was also a lot of concern expressed about you're not going to be able to change medical practice that, you know, basically people are used to using this dose. This is the mm. dose they're going to use. And so that that was really kind of part of the concern and discussion that went into all this. Awesome. Thanks, guys. That's really helpful. So uh, to summarize, Enterobacterialis, they, the breakpoints dropped two dilutions. So Cipro 1 to 0.25 and, and Levo 2 to 0.5. 
So moving on to Pseudomonas, they dropped one. So the old breakpoints where Cipro less than or equal to one was susceptible, greater than or equal to four was resistant. Levofloxacin less than or equal to two was susceptible, greater than or equal to eight was resistant. And these dropped to 0.5 and two respectively for Cipro and then one and four for levofloxacin. Anything different or same considerations for Enterobacter alice and Pseudomonas? I guess. Yeah, so one thing, one thing that I would weigh in on here is again for those that aren't in the weeds of this like those of us on this call is that so you might have the question of why are they different and i I think it's important to appreciate that the targets for different pathogens can differ and so the reason that the breakpoint is actually a little bit higher for pseudomonas is because the pkpd target is actually a little lower and so like that's going to come into these situations and that's why this gets a little bit confusing in some ways, but I I do think it's important for our audience to note that that's one of the reasons that there's a difference between these two groups of pathogens. Yeah, I'll add one more thing that the MIC distribution, so the one log target was lower, so that's as Jason eloquently said, and then the MIC distributions are different as well. So the MICs are higher with Pseudomonas, and if you were to push it a dilution lower, you'd really kind of jump into that wild type distribution. And I think because at least the at least the the animal targets were lower for one log kill, you know, that sort of had us land where we landed. And Aaron, I think that's that's important to bring up too, is that, you know, one of the, the things that I know we want to get to is if labs don't have cards that are updated to handle these, part of our concern too is disdiffusion here and making the disdiffusion test work. And I think this has been kind of a good example of an unintended consequence where the minor error rates for some of the disks with quinolones have really represented a challenge. And I think this is a good cautionary tale about why we need to, and, and I've been guilty about this as much as anybody else, not thinking about the disk breakpoints as much as maybe we should have. And really the, some of the error rates have created some real challenges for labs to be able to validate these disk breakpoints. And I know that we've run into that a little bit up in here in Oregon as well. So, you know, again, it's, it's one of these situations that I think it really kind of highlights a lot of the nuance and the complexity that can really go into some of this decision-making. That's really interesting. Can you explain a little more? So when we lowered the breakpoints, the dilution, are we only seeing those errors with Pseudomonas or for both Enterobacterialis and Pseudomonas? You know, I know that the that Pseudomonas, when you look at the distribution, is the one that concerns me the most. But I know that we had some struggles with Enterobacterales and discs as well. And this was one of those circumstances where we had to go back and use old registration data to try to kind of cobble some of these disc breakpoints together. And I think this is another really good point for the, the audience to understand is once these drugs are generic, finding money to come up to do a lot of this work to rework some of these breakpoints is not easy and and really creates some challenges. And again, our colleagues in Central and South America and other parts of the world are extremely reliant on DISC methodologies. And so if you break these, you create a ton of problems. And so I think, you know, really in particular, if you look at Pseudomonas, we really got super close to the wild type distributions for both of those. And I think you see that reflected in some of the challenges with the disc testing. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. That's a really helpful explanation. 
So for Pseudomonas and the fluoroquinolones, the dose, I know I mentioned it in Enterobacterialis, but I'll repeat it here for ciprofloxacin, new breakpoint of 0.5 is based on a dose of 400 IV Q8. Interestingly, there's no PO basis specifically listed because of the data available, but we would give the equivalent of 750 PO Q12 for that. And then Levo is the same as Enterobacterialis, so 750 IV or PO Q24. So to wrap up fluoroquinolones, this was from 2019. The FDA has agreed with the CLSI recommendations on this. Is that correct? That is correct. And I think that's great news because what that does is really unshackle the device manufacturers to be able to fully update their cards and whatnot, and then bring this back through with validated new software, new cards, et cetera. And this is much more straightforward then for labs to implement than if they kind of have to go off and do their own thing like we discussed a little bit in some of the previous episodes. Excellent. Yes. And we do have available updated panels. I think for most of the major platforms at this point, it is three, four years after this change. And so at least I know we have gone through and been able to pick new panels that quote, go low enough for uh, ciprofloxacin. Um, and we looked actually early at Piptazo, et cetera. And so they are available now, wells that, that go low enough to represent these new breakpoints for the fluoroquinolones, but your micro lab may not have done that yet. You may not have had the ability to update your panel yet, and you may still only be able to report less than or equal to one, less than or equal to two kinds of things. And so guys, what are your recommendations for labs currently? I mean, I think recommendation number one would be strive to work with your labs to get updated panels, bring in the new panels, validate them, and and have your AST do this automatically, that would be ideal. But if you can't do that and your panels don't go low enough for the fluoroquinolones, what are your options? So this comes up in our lab actually, because we use an older version of microscan panels and Cipro only goes down to 0.5. So it's not a, too big of an issue because levofloxacin is our fluoroquinolone on formulary. So it doesn't come up that often, but sometimes people want to you know, use Cipro and not Levo. So we have to supplement it with this diffusion or e-test. And I don't recommend people just inferring susceptibility uh, just because their panel, you know, reporting susceptibility just because their panel doesn't go low enough. I think that defeats the purpose of having set these breakpoints. So, Mike, I do want to clarify something that you said. So it doesn't go low enough, so you're getting the e-test to get the MIC. Do you suppress it up front it's just and not, then they, you have to call yeah, and ask not, for the e-test or do you report it? Oh, sorry. No, okay. sorry to interrupt. No, it's just not reported. I mean, we use, it doesn't come up often, okay. frankly, because we leave a okay. is because it's our drug of formulary. That's what all our clinicians are comfortable using. And that's what they send people home on. Right. So it doesn't come up that often, okay. but if, if you didn't have panels for okay. either, I could see that being a, a real challenge, but remember you do have alternate methods to do susceptibility testing, including distiffusion, including mm -hmm. e-tests. So I, I think, you know, you should consider that. I think Jason's point is a good one. If those are, I mean, obviously getting new panels in is, 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 is probably the best way to go, but, you know, labs do have other methods to test. And Aaron too, I think, I think this brings up a really important point that our audience may not be aware of. And that is that just because you're still able to buy a panel doesn't mean that it's got all the latest and greatest breakpoints updates, right? And, and I think that a lot of people and even a lot of labs think that, well, I'm still able to buy this panel. It's an FDA cleared panel. Therefore, everything on it must be correct. And I think that is unfortunately clearly not the case. And if you really want to get 
a little bit concerned about how big of an issue this is, would really encourage our listeners to take a look at Trish Simner and Romney Humphrey's paper in OFID in late 2022, because it shows just how far behind a lot of labs are on implementing these newer breakpoints. Yeah, that was a really eye-opening paper to see how many are behind. And I know I work with a lot of community hospitals, and it's very challenging to update these labs and even some academic centers. It just comes lower to priority to everything else that you need to do that day. So I think in summary, your options, if your panel doesn't go low enough, you can one, update your panel, but we appreciate that might be a challenge. Be careful when you're updating panels. There's a whole laundry list of options. When you're shopping around, they may or may not meet your needs. So compare them all. You can do what Mike said, where you can just not report it or suppress it, and then you'd have to call and ask for an e-test or a disk to get the MIC if you wanted to use it. Now, of course, your lab would have to be able to like keep those on hand and not expired and validated. That may be harder for smaller labs that see one pseudomonal bacteremia a year, so caveats to that as well. Um, you could suppress it and put a comment. Same with Gent and Tobra, as we talked about. You just want to make sure people aren't interchanging Levo and Cipro. And so you want to provide some education on that. Or you could report it as resistant, or you could report it with no interpretation. So these are all options. None of them are perfect, but just helping out if you're trying to figure out what you should do. And with that, guys, I think that wraps up our fluoroquinolone discussion and our episode four. So thank you for everyone for listening to Breakpoints. And following along, this episode was hosted by me, Erin McCreary, and Breakpoints was created by Julianne Justo, myself, and our good friend, Jason Pope, who is our panelist today. This episode was produced by Dr. Julianne Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard, and it was peer-reviewed by Eileen Ahiskali and Crystal Hodge. Our production team includes Veronica Zafant and Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you could subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future. <laughs>